Well, hello, this is Amy Ewing, uh, speaking to you today on the subject of origins as part of your overall series, Exploring the Bible Together. I don't know if you've asked the question, um, where do you come from? I get asked that question a lot. I'm sure you do too. Uh, and I find it a hard question to answer. My dad is German. All my grandparents and uh, relatives on that side of the family are German. My mum is English, but I was born in Australia. And my family have actually moved around quite a lot. I've lived in 10 different places. And my job takes me all over the world speaking um, for the last 25 years in more than 30 countries. And so when someone asks me, where are you from? I find it quite hard to come up with a succinct answer. But origins are important. They're important to us as human beings. It matters to answer the question who we are, to, to think about the question where have we come from. And you know what? The opening scenes of the Bible acknowledge the importance of origins. You see, the Bible begins with the book of Genesis. Genesis means beginnings. It takes us back to the dawn of time and tells us a story, not just of how the, com the complex universe came into existence, but also how human beings came to be and ultimately who we are. So if you have questions, why am I here? What is all this for? Is this it? Then, then this study is for you. You know, these questions have been coming up a lot more since lockdown as we've faced this global pandemic and some of us have been sort of shaken out, I guess, of our mundane lives and just the patterns of life that we've been on, that treadmill that we've been on. We've perhaps been shaken to ask, is there more? Who am I? Where am I from? And what am I here for? Well, when we come to look at the opening sequences of Genesis, we're invited to situate our small and sometimes fragile feeling lives within a larger story, a story that is both coherent and enduring. Genesis, in a sense, sets up the backdrop to all of human existence, underpinning our experiences and challenges. Andy Ollerton, the author of the book, I think you all are studying together, the Bible, a story that makes sense of life. He puts it like this. He says, according to Genesis, the universe is not a cold, empty space, an unfortunate accident or a sick joke. If we trace our family history all the way back to its source, we discover things about ourselves and where we've come from that satisfy our human desire for meaning. So as we explore together, we're going to break this, uh, this big subject of origins down into a few headings. And the first is this, creation and beauty. Let's think together about that opening phrase of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created. Now, hold on a minute, I hear you say, aren't those some of the most controversial words in the Bible? Don't only naive, suggestible, religious people believe in that as opposed to science? Surely in the days of science, we don't have to turn to God to provide an explanation for the universe. And isn't there a conflict between science and faith? Don't, don't we need to go with one, science, rather than the other, faith? 
Well, it may surprise you to know that there have been many committed Christians over the centuries whose faith actually inspired um, the scientific enterprise. Think about Galileo, Kepler, Boyle and Newton, and more recently, Francis Collins. He was the head of the Human Genome Project and he was the winner of the 2020 Templeton Prize. He put it like this. He said, the God of the Bible is also the God of the genome. He can be worshipped in the cathedral and in the laboratory. So when it comes to life, the universe and everything, science might be able to tell us how things happen or how things came about, but we're going to need something more to answer the question, why? To capture the difference between the how and the why, John Lennox, a colleague of mine at OCA, the Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics, and a retired professor at the University of Oxford in, in mathematics, he uses the illustration of a cake baked by his aunt Matilda. He says, nutritional scientists can analyse the ingredients, physicists the temperature and duration of the cake in the oven. Mathematicians can analyse the behaviour of the particles under those conditions. Science can tell us how the cake came to be, to be baked, but only Aunt Matilda can tell us why she baked it. So Genesis is more about why than how. In one short chapter of merely 31 verses, Genesis captures epic scenes of the entire cosmos coming into being, the Big Bang, if you like. One throwaway phrase sums up every galaxy and light year being made, just saying God made the stars also. Genesis chapter 1 verse 16. So this rather conservative word count, that the brevity of this chapter actually gives us a clue as to what the author is trying to do. The author isn't giving us a scientific explanation of how the author is showing us why. So let's think about our origins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Christians believe that God is the creator and that is the starting place for everything. Now, um, sometimes people think, well, that sounds a bit irrational. My brother-in-law actually works as an aeronautical engineer for the Ministry of Defence. And the hardware that he designs is complicated and impressive. But when a pilot takes a hold of the machine that my brother-in-law has designed, would that pilot be wrong in thinking that because we might be able to understand laws of thermodynamics, because we might be able to analyse mechanical theory behind the equipment, there is now no need for Simon to exist? No, I want to say the Bible suggests something other than that. The Bible suggests that the very fact of the order in the universe, the very fact of the order in the helicopter points us to an ordered designer behind the machine. The order in science actually points towards God, not away from him. C.S. Lewis put it like this, he said, men became scientific because they expected law in nature and they expected law in nature because they believed in a law giver. 
So when we look at the order and the beauty in the world around us, is it more logical to conclude this came about by just random processes, out of nothing, by nothing, by chance? Or is it more rational to believe that there's an ordered and personal cause? What is the evidence of the intelligence we see around us? So again, um, John Lennox gives a, a really helpful way of looking at this. He says, if I were to come across, so me being called Amy, if I were to come across the letters A-M-Y spelled out in the sand of a beautiful, beautiful beach, I would conclude that an intelligent person had strung those letters together in perfect order on purpose to make my name in something beautiful. Yet when we see the billions of letters in perfect order in DNA, why do some people conclude the opposite? Why do people conclude it, there must be an irrational cause to the universe around us? Genesis tells us that a loving and rational God has always existed and he made a good and rational world in which love is possible. In the beginning, God created. The universe began to exist. That what's, that's what Genesis tells us. That's what science tells us. But as we look at the beauty and complexity of that universe, is it more rational to say a loving and rational God is behind it or just blind chance and nothing are behind it? The order and the beauty of the world point us to God. The Genesis account makes sense. Again, Andy Ollerton comments, order, shape, symmetry and colour don't just happen. If you see a manicured garden, there's probably a gardener. If you enjoy a delicious meal, there'll be a talented chef working behind the scenes, not a random explosion in the kitchen. The world we see around us actually makes sense if the Genesis account is true. We're going to um, take a moment now to here are the experiences of someone called Steve who discovered this for himself. From a young age, I just loved spending time in nature and being in the outdoors. My parents, they also loved it and they used to take me to Snowdonia and the Lake District. I remember, maybe I was about six, looking up from the car window and seeing the ridges of Blencathra up high above me, so sort of narrow and sculpted, and they were inviting me up there. I could feel my heart beating and I just knew I needed to get outside and get into, get into the mountains. I grew up in Shropshire, and that meant there was no shortage of hills and valleys, countryside to explore. And when I'd be out there, I'd often think, there must be something behind this beauty. There must be some sort of creator. And even more than that, it dawned on me that there must be something that makes my heart resonate and feel like this. As a teenager, I had no idea about faith or Christianity. To me, that was just outdated thinking. And yet, every time I was out in nature, I felt strangely compelled to believe, to consider that maybe there was actually a God, and even to pray to him sometimes. So I decided it would be a good idea to go to university, study geography and biology, and it was there that I met Christians who were really open and bold about their faith and they seemed intelligent enough and that got me thinking well maybe I should be a bit more open-minded about things. 
So my love of the outdoors just continued to grow and I would be off hiking and running. And I remember one evening in Shropshire just lying on top of a hill, calling out to God, look if you're there would you make yourself known to me? So I started going along to church with some of my friends from university and I realized I didn't have all the answers. Maybe I needed to humble myself before this God who I was starting to recognize was the creator of everything. And then one day at church, I felt compelled to kneel down before God. I was overcome with emotion. There were tears rolling down my cheeks. And the name of Jesus that once had meant nothing to me suddenly realized it was a name of power and beauty. The same power and beauty that had spoken to me since I was a child. And from that moment, it's been amazing to be in a daily relationship with the same God, the one not only created the whole universe, but he also created me. And what a joy. Although this is my story, I don't know anybody who doesn't marvel at a sunset or feel humbled by the power of the ocean. And that makes me think God is communicating with everyone, calling them graciously to himself if they would listen. So that's a little bit on um, order and origin and the beginning. And secondly, we're going to think about human identity and purpose. If the beauty and the order of the world point us towards God, Steve noticed it. He was open to that and he allowed his questions to actually lead him towards God and asked that question, God, if you're there, will you reveal yourself to me? And um, that, that's a, a beautiful thing to happen. But how do human identity and purpose fit into the Genesis story? Well, um, the Genesis story tells us in chapter 1, verse 27, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 1, 27. So Christian faith is saying that there is a God-likeness about us as human beings, that our lives are essentially valuable because we bear the divine image. And the Bible is saying that that's actually true of everyone, whether we believe in God or not. We are all creatures of dignity. And if that is true, the essential part of you that makes you you has a transcendent source. Your value as a person is not imagined or invented. It is real and its grounding is God's image in you. According to the Bible, what it means to be human is to be made by a loving God and to bear his image, not by chance, not by survival of the fittest, not by a process of the weak eliminating the strong. Your source is love. A human, says the Bible, is inexpressibly, eternally and undeniably precious. The psalmist says, you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Human beings are glorious, created, precious beings. We're not the product of random processes, indistinguishable in value from slime. We were formed, we were lovingly made. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says he's made everything beautiful in its time and he has set eternity 
in the human heart. In other words, if you sense a longing for more to life than just the mundane aspect of consuming things, buying things and being on a treadmill, if you think there must be more to life than this, and if you look around the world and you think human beings that you're not connected to are precious, that instinct is is showing you that what the Bible is saying is true. Human beings are created in the image of God. Now, I experienced that wonder when I gave birth for the first time, and that was actually to twins. That is 15 years ago um, to the day next week. And I remember um, going into the hospital as one person, and we came out of the hospital as a family of four. So my husband and I went in, but what was in me became three people. And it's undeniably true that those people, my boys, are, are precious to me. And that is how God feels about you. Our capacity for love, for beauty, our longing for meaning and relationship and everything that gives our life purpose and value, the framework of the Bible makes sense of that in a way that a godless view of the world just doesn't. If we're here by chance, if we're just akin to slime, that worldview doesn't make sense of what we know to be true about being a human being. So the Bible talks in Genesis of a good God creating a good world. But thirdly, we know that something has gone wrong. Something's gone wrong with the world because everything isn't perfect. We don't feel all the time like we're living in this bubble of love and meaning. But actually, the creation account of the Bible also rings true with our experience of brokenness in this world. See, the Bible says God saw that it was good. God has located us as human beings in a good world, but he's also given us the capacity to make choices. Genesis 2, 15 to 17, talks about the man and the woman in the Garden of Eden taking care of things and being free to eat from any tree in the garden, but that they must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. God makes human beings to have the capacity to love, and they also have the capacity to choose. And actually, those two things are really closely connected. For love to exist, freedom must exist. We all know this to be the case. I really experienced realising that that was the case for the first time, most powerfully, I think, when I was 15. I was a teenager growing up in Birmingham and I became friends with a girl whose parents were trying to force her into a marriage with someone she had never met. She was 15 and she was afraid. And she had good reason to be afraid because a few months earlier, her cousin had been in the same situation and her cousin had decided to run. But actually, the relatives found her cousin and they knocked her down with the car in the street. They got her into the car. They took her out of the country. She was forcibly married in another country and my friend never heard from her again. So my friend had really good reason to be worried. And I remember her saying to me, I want to live in this life and to experience love. And I have this feeling 
that that has to be chosen in some way by me. And that if I go through with this wedding that I, I don't want to happen, that in some way my ability to receive and to give love will have been compelled, it will have been undermined and that that won't be love. For true love to be possible, she, she actually did escape from that situation. She was helped into a safe house and um, she was able to go on and live her life, not in that situation. For true love to be possible, it must be freely offered and received. We all know this to be the case in our own human romantic and sexual relationships. But it's, it's the case more fundamentally than that. It's the case because God has undergirded our freedom. He's given us the ability to choose. That's what Genesis describes. That's what that tree of the knowledge of good and evil actually means. The existence of the tree, which they've been warned not to eat from, means that they have real choice. And in the context of a loving and harmonious relationship, that freedom must be real. And in the Bible, it is real. A boundary has been set. They have the capacity to choose. They could choose to just eat from all the other trees, but they don't. They exercise their independent capacity to make a decision for ill as well as for good in this narrative account. So the idea put forward by Genesis is that hum as human beings, we have been given the capacity to love and the capacity to choose, but we've used those abilities to harm as well as to love. And the Bible tells us that that is why there is injustice, darkness, pain and suffering in this world. The impact of our choices is not just upon ourselves and those who are closest to us, but it even impacts the very fabric of the world, the environment that we live in. The, human, the first humans to ever live chose not to love God, but instead to try to be God, to have that final authority over what is right and wrong. And as the story unfolds, there's this progression from Adam and Eve and their original decisions and everybody else's decisions. And so we see the impact of this upon subsequent generations. In other words, moral choices impact not just ourselves, but others and the very fabric of the universe. That's how Genesis describes reality. I think that's profound. I don't see in any other worldview an explanation of our human condition that comes anywhere close to this. Genesis tells us that we are undeniably precious, we bear God's image, that we have the capacity for love and choice. And Genesis also tells us that we live in a world that is broken, where we're impacted by the moral decisions of other human beings as well as our own sin. Now we can try to deny the reality of that, but actually the verdict of our experience of this world underpins what Genesis is saying. The Christian faith describes reality as it actually is. Suffering is real, it hurts, 
the brokenness of this world really hurts precisely because we are more than the sum of our biochemistry and we are not here by accident. Suffering and evil hurt as much as they do because we are so precious. We're marked by this image of God and because of our capacity to love. Christian faith explains why and how life is precious at that ultimate level. And it also explains why and how we experience brokenness and pain in the way that we do because of that original fall in that original garden in Genesis and because of the decisions you and I have made. So we've looked a little bit at origins and beauty, we've looked a little bit at what it means to be human, we've looked a little bit at how evil and suffering and pain and sin came into this world and now lastly as we end we're going to think for a few moments about the hope of redemption. If Genesis is right we were made for love and beauty and goodness and meaning in some primary way and we all long for that. But pain and darkness and selfishness and injustice have entered our world as, our, as a result of our exercise of our choices. And they're now, all that pain is now an unwanted part of our human felt reality. If Genesis is right, the Bible gives us an explanation for why things are as they are, but it also offers us hope. You see, right there in chapter three, just as the fall of human beings is happening, there's a, there's a, 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 a sentence of hope. God says to the woman, your seed will crush the serpent's head. There will be someone who will be born into this world of pain and suffering through a woman who will ultimately crush the power and impact of sin and death and evil in this world. That promise, that first messianic promise of the Bible given to that original woman Eve is fulfilled in the life of another woman, a teenager called Mary, who as a virgin conceives a child, Jesus. Her seed, by the power of the Holy Spirit, brings to birth Jesus. And Jesus is the one who is, who is born perfectly good, not impacted by sin, born into this world, and who ultimately crushes that serpent's head. The hope of redemption is right there at the beginning of the Bible, that Jesus is going to come and Jesus does come in human history. Jesus is not just an idea or a prophecy. Jesus really lived. He really was born in human history and he really did crush the serpent's head through dying on the cross. And he promised that because of his death, we could have hope in this world. In John's Gospel, chapter 14, he says this, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God and you believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you and I will come back to take you to be with me where I am. I have read those words of John 14 at the bedside 
of many dying people with a young woman dying of cancer, with a, a, a young woman who had a terminally ill baby. In these moments at the end of a person's life, I've noticed an electrifying sense of the presence of Jesus. It can be quite frightening to face death without Jesus. But with Jesus, there is hope. You see, what he did on the cross was to crush and defeat the power of evil by taking it into himself and paying the price for that sin, for that evil through his death on the cross. And because of that, we can be confident that we can be forgiven, that we can stand before a holy God, knowing that Jesus has crushed evil, including our own sin through his death on the cross, knowing that he then has prepared a place in eternity for us, a home for us. There's extraordinary hope in the Christian faith, an offer of a relationship with a personal God, not a system, not a machine, a loving father who through the death of his son, Jesus, has made a way for us to know him and to be with him for eternity. I wonder if you sense his voice speaking to you personally today that you are precious because your origin is love, that you are precious because you are made in the image of God, that the evil and suffering in this world, the pain that you are in is explained by the Bible and can be redeemed and forgiven because of the sacrifice of the Son of God. I wonder if you sense the beauty and truth of that message and if you might want to open the door of your heart to him. Jesus says in the Bible, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. I want to invite you to do that right now, to open the door of your heart to the Son of God who came, prophesied in Genesis, who crushed evil and he wants to redeem, forgive you and come into your life and pour the love of God into your life. So why don't we pray for a moment? Lord Jesus, I want to receive that gift that you offer. I acknowledge my need for that forgiveness, that it wasn't just Adam and Eve who sinned in that garden, but that I too have sinned. I ask for your forgiveness through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And I would love you to come into my life to begin that heavenly relationship with you that will last into eternity. Amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time or as a way of coming back to Jesus today, I'm really pleased for you. And we'd love to help you take steps in getting to know Jesus more. A link is going to appear on the screen right now. And let me encourage you to follow that link and to let us know about the decision that you are making today. Someone will be in touch with you. Thank you so much for listening.